This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Welcome back to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. Um, the July 28th edition. I'm Ben Jacob, joined this week by Carl Jorn. Carl, how are you today? I'm doing well, Ben. Thank you. And we're also joined by Dan Emmert. Dan, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm sitting in the air conditioning now, so much better than earlier. (laughs) That's right. Ben, I'm going to take back my I'm doing well comment because it is there's corn still pollinating in my area. And when I'm trucking through a cornfield, it is it it is heck on my allergies. So I will I will remove that comment. Um, I'm sure some of our (laughs) listeners probably feel similarly if if they're out scouting their corn for diseases like we've been uh, advising here lately. Yeah, I'm sitting here in a, a similar condition myself today. So Longtime listeners of the show will recognize Dan. Um, he's been on here a couple of times to help us out with, with the conversation. And this week, we want to revisit last week's episode where we talked about photosynthetically active radiation or solar radiation in general. Um, but we talked about some of the impact that it can have. We didn't do a great job on listening back at, at defining defining some ranges and, and timing on that and what we brought Dan on for, Dan has a really cool shade cloth demo out in southern, well, further south in Indiana, down around Montgomery, um, that admittedly is a little bit more of a visual demonstration, but we're going to do our best to talk through it today with you guys and some of the results that he's seen. So, Dan, with that, if you can describe to us um, at a at a high level the, the setup of this demonstration that you've done, and then we'll get into some of the details. Yeah, so at the highest level, we took some um, greenhouse shade cloth that blocks about 70% of the sunlight, and the guys at Rosedale Ag in Montgomery built a big structure for us to put over the top of some corn, and uh, we started in the middle of June and left it on there for a certain amount of time and then moved it over it to a couple other timings as well. Um, but basically we were just trying to simulate the effects of two or three weeks of cloudy days and see how that affects ear development. Very good. So to start with your, your first timing, um, where you left on for two or three weeks, what, what growth stage on the plant are we looking at for these, for these individual timings? you you're seeing so yeah so the the first timing um we started on june 15th and left it there until july 2nd so it was about over that time period we accumulated 425 heat units um but it was basically say v12 v13 somewhere in there up until we had about 50 percent of the tassels shooting um in the untreated checks Okay. And then after that, you stayed roughly roughly two week windows, moving it across, moving it across the plot. Correct. Yes. Um, the next one was from that July second to July fourteenth, and we were anticipating leaving it on there a little bit longer, but uh, that stress was so severe that that we moved it a few days earlier, 
Um, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's the next treatment has been on there from the 14th until uh, where we are currently, and then we're getting ready to move it again. Okay. So Dan. we were trying to to reduce uh, solar radiation prior to pollination, right during pollination, and then again immediately following uh, pollination to see what the effects on the ears would be at, at those different timings. So Dan, it sounds like a sneak preview that uh, that stress right around uh, flowering uh, probably is going to be where we're having uh, a significant impact, or would you say it remains to be seen because we haven't uh, finished off what it's going to look like in early grain fill stages? Where Where's your mind at right now? Well, Carl, you have to have grain before you can go through grain fill stress. So, uh, yeah, it was fair a, enough. It Still was a blister, a very... blister stage. <laughs> No, it, it didn't pollinate at all. Oh, we, golly. Um, yeah, so 70% reduction in sunlight, which would be, you know, like a rainy day for two weeks during pollination will really, really uh, wreak havoc on corn pollination. So we, we were out there, um, I don't know, it was the 13th or 14th looking, and and the tassels were out, but we couldn't find any ear shoots uh, where those plants had been shaded for 12 days. So, uh, you know, I think like Ben was saying earlier, it's 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 an extreme demonstration, and and probably very rarely would we see that in in real world. But say you have a hurricane, or you know, just a combination of multiple stresses, uh, boy, we can really mess up a, a corn plant. Right. Well, I was just going to say it, it, it makes sense, um, Dan, based on, you know, the plants going through some hormonal changes at that stage in its life cycle. We're trying to produce new reproductive tissues. And so if we don't have enough to eat at the kitchen table, then we're not going to be able to continue to grow and develop. And so, you know, for those folks that are trying to figure out, well, why was it so much more impactful? Uh, at that stage in the plant's life cycle, that, that you know, that that kind of from a, a crude metaphor, physiologically, that's kind of what's going on there. So having quality sunlight around around flowering and corn and soybeans, for that matter, is really, really important. Yeah, and, and I think one of the interesting things for me was, was seeing on some of those plants, we ended up with kind of barbell ears, where at, at the basal end of that ear, We've got normal development. In the middle, it dwindles down to almost nothing. And then it's, it's like the plant was almost ready to give up. And then as soon as that shade was moved, it's like, oh, hey, here's some more photosynthate. I'm gonna get, you know, do everything I can to reproduce. And so then we've got another flush of, of kernels coming out of the tip of that ear as the development continued. So unfortunately, there's not much pollen remaining in the area. Um, but, uh, we may end up with a few kernels out of that treatment. So as you, as you look across, as you're moving at this, this pre-tassel window, um, last week, I think we talked about, about a reduction in ear length and that, is that what you've observed, um, with your pre-tassel treatment? Yeah. And so we think about plant development in that two weeks prior to pollination, having an, um, the plant growing as healthily and then rapidly as you can and getting as much photosynthate in there as you can is, is going to be helpful for maximizing ear length 
and, and where we underwent stress, the the ear right now at you know our blister stage is probably three inches shorter than the untreated check, but the the total number of potential kernels maxed out at about 35 to 38. Whereas in that that check that's had normal amounts of sunshine, um, we're up into the 40s anyway. So yeah, that stress prior to pollination, just like we would expect, reduced the total number of potential kernels long on those ears. So when you touched on having it, um, having those barbell ears after flowering, and then you moved it again a little bit, a little bit later, you know, two weeks in that treatment, almost two weeks, and you moved it again, what sort of impact are you seeing on those R1, R2 ears? Yeah, so, and it's still a, a bit early on those R1, R2 ears. What I, I think we'll see as they go back, um, well, I'm going to look again tomorrow, but I think we'll definitely see more tip back or kernel abortion up on the ends of the ear. There is already a reduction in, in diameter. If you would compare the untreated check to where we've had the shade uh, after successful pollination, um, where you know, that plant's just not producing as much photosynthate, and uh, so it's not putting as much into the kernels. But I guess a couple of the other interesting things we've seen under the shade in every single treatment, while it has been shaded, those lower leaves all fire. I think that plant is reallocating resources to the growing points of that plant because it's, it's not able to... Uh, you know, produces much photosynthesis. And the other thing is, you know, temperature is, is cooler under that shade and there's also more moisture in the soil. It's just, boy, a day like today, I'd love to be under that canopy. <laughs> but, you know, if you, you think about it, that the transpiration rate goes lower. If that plant is not pumping as much water through the plant, well, it's, it's probably not taking up as much nutrients either. If you think about the, the nutrient concentration in that water being constant, um, I would say we're going to move less nutrients through there as well. And that's something uh, I think if you think back to last year, one of the forward thinking farming uh, webinars about tissue sampling, that's something Brewer Blessed, they had a little demo they did where they tissue sampled, where they just had the plant shaded for three days versus where it had sunlight and those nutrient concentrations were lower uh, where those plants had been under the shade there as well. Yeah. So I think this ties in nicely with one of the, you know, one of the themes of this summer that we talked about on the podcast is, is stress. Stress has a compounding effect. It's not as simple as we had this particular stress. We've recovered from it. And, you know, now we're now we're off to the races again. All these stresses tend to build off each other. And, you know, the, the shady days, as Dan just outlined, you're you're bringing in a lot of, of secondary and tertiary stresses. Um from that one primary stress. So, you know, obviously, Dan, this is a pretty extreme demonstration. We've mentioned that a number of times, but it's not uncommon for us to see four, five, six cloudy days in a row where at least part of that day has pretty heavy cloud cover. And Carl, I'd have to assume as you get closer to the lake up that way that, that that's, that's pretty realistic as well. So with that, we know you know, there, there, ha there has been some research around this and some published studies with, uh, 
similar treatments as, as to what Dan's done. So, so the big question comes to if I do encounter that weather and I get a week straight or two weeks straight of these cloudy days, um, what sort of impact is that going to have? Um, Dan, do you have any observations or anything you'd, you'd contribute around that question? Um, I think part of it depends on how severe the stress is and if there's compounding stresses. So say we have rain for three days and then also so the soil is saturated and then another front moves through and we have root lodging associated with it as well and continued shade that's going to be a lot worse than just um you know a week of, of cloudy weather so as you said secondary tertiary additional stresses are going to have a big impact but you know kind of the idea for this study came from a a pioneer uh, field focus or crop facts article. Uh, I believe it was from 2015 where we had uh, lower levels of uh, PAR during grain fill. And they went back and, and pulled a couple of uh, agronomy journal articles or some, you know, some published research that had been done with this same type of thing. And one of them was a 2009 study where they used 50% shade cloth or i guess 55 percent and where they shaded it for four weeks prior to silking it reduced yield by three percent which wasn't statistically significant but at silking was a, a 12 and a half percent reduction and then three weeks shade for three weeks after silking was a 21 percent reduction in yield so uh, and that that comes through change in the number of kernels per row but then also in, in kernel weight so and you know three weeks of continuous cloudy weather is is in itself pretty extreme but i guess the point is you know we think about rainfall and we think about temperature and they talk about that on the news every single night and and we you know there's the drought monitor and then we worry about all those types of things but we don't really track and, and quantify photosynthetically active radiation or solar radiation, whatever you want to call it or however you want to measure it. We don't really track it that well, um, but it can have an impact on yield. And, you know, that is one of the things in our PKP plots where we can go in and we can give our plot cooperator a growing season report that shows, hey, during pollination we had lots of sunny days or we had cloudy days or that and and kind of figure out why we may be seeing more kernel tip back or why our ears longer than normal this year um i went back and pulled the 10 years of uh previous plot data for the location where we have that shade cloth and then a, another neighboring plot where you know we've been there for 10 years as well you know, things happen, you don't get the, the data every single year, but between those two, I had the data going all the way back to 2010. And if you throw out 2012, because moisture was obviously the limiting factor there, the highest yields always came when we had sunny days during pollination. Hmm. Um, yeah. And there was some effect uh 
with cloud during grain fill, but, but that surprised me that the greatest correlation was the sunny days during flowering and pollination. Yeah, I'm tracking with you on that, Dan. I would have thought that you would have seen just as much of an impact, if not more, on the grain fill side of things because, you know, it, it, like you said, temperature is critically important, precipitation is critically important as we're going through grain fill. So if we've got cloudy days and, you know, say we're cloudy, but we're pretty warm out and you're racing through, you know, from a developmental standpoint, getting to physiological maturity, but you don't have the same quality of sunlight to be able to create as much photosynthate as possible. Obviously, we're not going to be maximizing our yield potential there. So it's interesting that the, the reproductive parts of the corn plant are, are so highly sensitive, um, you know, based on your analysis there and based on the previous studies where, you know, as we're entering into flat flowering or shortly thereafter, that's, that may be the most sensitive time, or at least, you know, top two most sensitive times to be wishing for, uh, you know, clouds to go away, if you will. I think the other interesting thing, Carl, um, you know, those plots were five, seven miles apart. Sometimes they were planted two weeks apart from each other. And, you know, you take 2014, which was a great year for us. We had a, a cool grain fill period. It really extended the time to pack those kernels, but the plot that yielded more was the one that had the sunshine during pollination. And then, you know, the one that wasn't quite as good plant a little bit later and it, and it hit that cloudy stretch. So even, even five miles uh, and two weeks of planting can make a big difference. So I think that's, that's a practical implication for this year where you're trying to compare the home farm to your cousin's field that's that's uh, you planted two weeks later. Think about what was happening during pollination at that time, and you know it may not be even though similar soil types are similar and fertility is similar. Uh, stresses at different stages of a corn plant's life can really have a big impact on final yield. Well, like you were saying, I mean, you got certain waypoints within the crop's life cycle where you're determining different parts of the yield equation, you know, so early on and, you know, around V5 or so as you're figuring out how many kernel rows around, if you've got an extreme stress then, well, okay, there's there's nothing more we can do to, you know, enhance yield beyond that point because we already have a restrictive factor then. So everything else that goes on in the growing season, you know, come V15, as we're determining the number of kernels long, same deal, you know, we can't go back and make up more yield. All we can do is preserve the yield that, you know, the potential that's there. So that does make good sense why, you know, the reproductive phase of corn is, is really a, a sensitive time for, uh, you know, uh, having high quality sunlight. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I guess probably the biggest question after last week came out is, you know, I look outside today, the sun actually is shining. We have pretty good sunshine. Um, but for most of the past 10 days, we've had a bit of a haze, the smoke from the wildfires. And I think that's been, you know, the, if we can apply any of this practically, um, what sort of impact does having that bit of haze over, over a period of 10 days what sort of impact and do we have a way to quantify, you know, maybe how much sunlight we've lost from that? You would be surprised how many people have asked that question. I'm sure you've got a ton of those same questions, Ben and, and Carl. 
Um, I, I just pulled the data yesterday for that location in Montgomery and July 9th, there's a, we were, uh, we'd been above average for a few days and then July 9th, 10th, whatever, it started raining and we saw a big drop off. Mm-hmm. Once those rains quit, um, looking at, at, at the plot data on those things, the haze is reducing that PAR level but not at the same level as a very cloudy day or a rainy day. So we're, we're, you know, the past couple of days we've been slightly below average, but not at a 50% reduction or 70% reduction or, or anything like that. Um, and that jives, I mean, you know, clouds are thicker than, than a haze is. So, you know, practically speaking, that makes sense, but it's nice to be able to put some actual, you know, numbers behind it. So we know how worked up somebody's got to be, because as Ben alluded to earlier, I just checked some, uh, some plot data prior to jumping on here today and same story up in Northwest Indiana, you know, a good majority of my geography has been in a depressed state, uh, when it comes to having enough uh, you know, solar radiation for the month of July. So seeing what that's going to bring come harvest time, that's, that's something that I'm going to keep my eye on because, uh, of all the reasons that we just, you know, just shared. Another way that a, that a grower could check that fairly simply, uh, it won't be scientifically precise, but if you go into your granular insights account or pioneer seeds and you have the imagery turned on, you know, that, that software has some filters in it where if it's a cloudy day, you're not going to have a satellite image. Oh, sure. So if sure. you go back and, and it's been 10 days since you have a, a satellite image for that field, well, man, it's been pretty doggone cloudy. But if you've got one from two days ago and four days is five days ago, then, you know, you're probably in pretty decent shape. Well, one thing in this conversation, uh, you know, when I used to work out in the Western Corn Belt in central Nebraska, you know, big differentiator that a lot of people would think of as well, you know, it's more humid back here, you know, home in Indiana. And so maybe that's the biggest, biggest difference. But one thing that probably doesn't come to mind as readily for a lot of folks is, well, we have significantly more rainfall out here. And obviously they've got, you know, a more arid climate out there, but our rain comes from clouds. And so we've got significantly more cloudy days than what they have as you keep on traveling west. So a a significant um, advantage for the folks, as long as you're able to water in over a pivot for the folks in Nebraska, is you've got really high quality solar radiation, where as for us, that humidity and that extra precipitation does come with a bit of a bit of a penalty to it. Uh, So you know, just one more, one more differentiator between uh, us in the East and those folks out West. So if we can sum that, that bit of the conversation up, Dan, is it fair to say that while we are losing from the haze, some solar radiation, that the likely impact of that, it, it should be minimal at this point. Yeah, it's a lesser impact than say, if we had an inland hurricane or, or something like that with total cloud cover for sure. Very good. So at this point, we'll pivot just a little bit. And even though it may feel like we've, we've beat fungicides and we beat diseases to death, um, you know, there are two, two diseases in Indiana that, that can give us fits because, well, they're relatively new to deal with and um, they're very aggressive about being tar spot and southern rust. So with all the moisture that we've had, you know, down in the southern part of the state, we've had some very warm days. 
Uh, we'll start with you, Carl. What are you seeing on tar spot? Um, and what advice would you give with where your crop's staged at? Sure. So a lot of the crop in Northwest Indiana right now, we've got actively pollinating corn and that that's on the back end of blister stage. Um, so that would, that would probably capture the majority. Uh, in terms of disease pressure, tar spot is becoming more prevalent. I've got folks that'll text me pictures now uh, on the regular saying, you know, is this tar spot or I just found my first lesion of the season. So contrary to maybe uh, some of the uh, what folks are seeing, you know, out and about on social media, what have you. Yes, tar spot is out there, but we're not at an epidemic by any means. You know, it's lesions can be found in, in fields with history of tar spot. And it is here a little bit earlier than than the norm is. But if you don't have a history of tar spot, I wouldn't wouldn't go out, uh, you know, and, and be fearful or fraught whether you need to make an application here tomorrow or something of that nature. So no different than all the guidance we we give, uh, you know, continue scouting those fields. Um, you know, if you had tar spot that showed up here two weeks ago and you haven't jumped back in that field, I'd strongly advise you to, to, to make sure that's not, you know, progressing uh, far quicker than what you'd expect to. But um, it's definitely easier to find out there as opposed to really having to hunt for it. Uh, and then just with the humidity that we're experiencing this week, you know, that lends itself to, to other fungal diseases. And so you all down south can probably speak to, uh, uh, you know, how things are looking from a southern rust perspective or even a peek behind the curtain on gray leaf spot because some of the some of the models you look at, it kind of makes you wonder, well, am I going to have that disease show up clear up north in Indiana or, you know, how's that how's that coming? Yeah, so so I've not found any southern rust yet. Um, the counties I cover aren't aren't lit up, but you look at spore traps and the, the weather pattern, it's it's most certainly here um, at a really low incident but dan you've you found some um, what what sort of severity are we looking at what you know what are you what are you telling your growers at this point yeah so you're right it, it's very low severity and it when you look at the ipipe website for southern rust and you see a county that is red all that means is that one leaf has been found and it has been sent to purdue or another university lab to verify under a microscope that is southern rust. Um, so, you know, basically the, the, the southwest tier of counties, if, if they're not lit up yet, I would expect them to be lit up soon. Um, but like I was, I walked fields all morning this morning, did not see a single southern rust pustule anywhere. And then we had, we had stopped and we were talking and looking at some ears and I looked down and over and there's one leaf. And so, oh, okay, it's like kind of mushroom hunting and you really, uh -huh. really start looking and looking and looking and oh, we found two more leaves, but it, it is not, my bigger concern at the point is gray leaf spot. Man, fields that have not been sprayed yet for gray leaf spot, it is very easy to find the ear leaf that has a lot of lesions on it or even starting to find gray leaf spot lesions in the upper canopy. So, you know, we first started finding these lesions about a month ago and, and talking about fields reaching that threshold of, you know, if you're finding it within three leaves of the ear leaf, you probably need to spray. And the fields that have been sprayed are in, are in pretty good shape, but fields that haven't, or maybe, you know, they got turned in a week ago or 10 days ago and have just been sprayed, there's been been quite a bit of gray leaf spot development in those fields 
And I, you know, tying it back to the first part of the conversation, we worry about solar radiation. Well, there's not a single thing we can do about that. But you know what is collecting all that sunlight? It's the leaf area. It's the upper canopy of our plants. And doggone it, we've got a great tool to help protect that leaf area with a fungicide. And I think we've got a really good ROI setting up this year with, with the disease pressure. Um, looking out at the 10-day forecast, it looks like it's going to be warm and, and maybe not so much rainfall. But we've got humidity overnight and, you know, you walk out at 9 a.m. and there's still some moisture in the canopy. I think southern rust is probably going to continue to develop, but at a slower rate. I think a lot of this April planted corn will probably be okay. Um, a fair amount of, of it is late milk or early dough stage for me. The, the stuff that was planted in May is it, probably a little bit more concerning, especially if you haven't sprayed a fungicide yet. But um, I just encourage guys to keep walking and, and looking and, you know, try not to let it get to the point where your shirt turns orange when you walk out of the field before you decide you need to do something about it. But it's it's very low incidence and severity at this point. Yep. And I, and with gray spreading, I mean, we've talked about that early that gray, gray was moving pretty rapidly. And you look at the weather that we've had, um, a key, a key thing to remember about gray is it just needs humidity. It doesn't have to have that leaf moisture to, to spread at its full potential. So on these days when we do have, you know, we do have 85% humidity, um, gray, gray can move aggressively if we have the heat. So I think Carl, that, that Dan's, Dan's uh, monologue there at the end pretty well wrapped everything up nicely. Um, so <laughs> if anybody heard anything and they want to reach out to, to anybody or have suggestions for topics, things they want to hear about, Carl, where can folks reach you? Ben, folks can follow along with me on Twitter at CJorn. And, and I will, I hate to, to ruin the flow of things, but just in the spirit of the fungicide conversation for growers up in Northern Indiana, we touched on tar spot, but with respect to Western bean cutworm on your sandier acres, um, you know, we, we had peak moth flight here a couple of weeks ago and usually you see, um, you know, the eggs begin to hatch uh, more or less a week after that, that peak moth flight. And so just as you're out looking for your gray leaf spot lesions or tar spot or northern corn leaf blight, be mindful to look at the flag leaf to see if you find any western bean cutworm egg masses because there's not a whole lot of time that we have to be able to, you know, get a good insecticide application down to control that pest. So uh, if you haven't sprayed your fungicide yet, maybe something to consider throwing an insecticide in because, for us out here, you know, it only takes having one plant with an egg mass out of every 20. It's a, it's a relatively low threshold. So uh, not something that you all down south have to think of all that often, but uh, just something that I'd hate to neglect here is we're kind of coming up against the time of, of making those decisions. So uh, outside of that, um, that that's a, you know, a brief plug for those, you know, northern tier counties. And uh, yep. Like, like I said, see me on Twitter to keep up to date with everything else going on up north. Uh, how about Dan Emmert? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Dan Emmert or on Facebook. Um, I think that's Dan Emmert's agronomy. But um, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here today, guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Hey, well, we appreciate you coming on. And if, um, if you're not following Dan, certainly get on, get on there and you can see pictures of cool demos and find out what's going on in southwestern Indiana. 
Um, and to see what's happening just north of there, you can follow me on Twitter at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. And guys, we really appreciate you spending your time with us. Um, and with that, we hope, uh, hope you enjoyed it and stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.